Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. Bernie and the Elephants. This is part one of a three-part post where I examine the relationship between human economic inequality and environmental issues. Elephants are in trouble. No, not the Republicans. But Botswana, one of the last remaining refuges for the African elephant, has reportedly seen an almost 600% increase in elephant deaths in the past four years, mostly due to poaching for ivory. Conservationists have been warning for years that poaching would eventually reach Botswana, according to Mary Rice of the Environmental Investigation Agency, a nonprofit group that works to combat the illegal ivory trade, and it appears their fears are well-founded. The government in Botswana has challenged this notion and even lifted a ban on commercial hunting of elephants. In certain parts of Botswana, villagers are involved in conservation efforts. In others, they are not, particularly if it is more economically feasible to not help. I came across this information in a New York Times article last year and took a keen interest in it. I can't state an expert opinion on the details of this controversy but the smart money is on the interpretation of conservationists. What struck me most about the article was a quote buried at the end, literally the very end, the last paragraph. It was a quote from Neil Fitt, described as an independent conservation consultant in Botswana. Here's the quote in full. I'm not saying that poaching is okay, but whilst we have these problems, it is difficult to get the local communities on board to assist in protecting wildlife. Addressing poverty and unemployment in the rural areas would go a long way in protecting our wildlife. I read this article at Bold Bean, a local coffee shop, and I literally shouted out, duh, when I read it. It just seemed so obvious, yet there it was at the tail end of the article. This got me to thinking on how the plight of animals specifically and the environment generally is so closely tied to the experience of humans. On one hand, extant data shows that wealthier countries use a disproportionate amount of the Earth's resources, since levels of consumption far outpace the rest of the world. On the other hand, we know that poorer nations are often forced to despoil the environment in order to survive, not to have a bigger house or newer SUV, but to eat, to feed their kids. So there are links, both direct and attenuated, between human inequality and our physical and natural environment. My curiosity about this topic was originally peaked in 1991 as a student at Florida State University when I read a manuscript about a couple who tried to make a living as cattle ranchers in a small province in Africa. Most of their cattle were eventually killed by lions and the couple tried to make sense of the balance between their own physical needs and the needs of the lions. I can't recall the name of this book and I've looked for it on and off over the years, so if anyone knows what I'm talking about, please let me know. But the takeaway was that the life chances of the lions were inexorably linked to the life chances of the humans. Fast forward 10 years, and the next step was a chance encounter at the annual meeting of the American Sociological Association with David Nybert of Wittenberg College, who had recently published a book titled Animal Rights, Human Rights, Entanglements of Oppression and Liberation. I was fortunate enough to spend some time listening to him answer my banal, uninformed, but exploratory questions about the links between human inequality and animal rights and environmental issues, and from those discussions arose a worldview of the interconnectedness 
between humans and other animals. Nybert states in his book, the mistreatment of devalued humans and other animals has been, and continues to be, driven largely, although not exclusively, by individual material interests and the broader economic systems that condition them. Since I've analyzed the plight of our environment as subsequent to the plight of humans, not for moral or ethical reasons should the human condition be examined first, but simply because of power and motive. So when I came across the New York Times article about the elephants of Botswana, I reached out to Neil Fit. After using all my girl with the dragon tattoo internet skills to find him, which took weeks due to my lack of skill in that area, and we commenced a discussion about these issues. Mr. Fit, an environmental advisor, formerly the chief executive officer of the Kalahari Conservation Society in Botswana, elaborated on his New York Times comments in our emails. Quote, government approaches are usually ill-informed and end up benefiting the wrong targets. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The sooner our governments accept this, the sooner we can move forward in addressing the root causes and not just treat the symptoms. What is needed is for governments, the private sector, and civil society, for example, to all work together to get the win-wins and not to bury one's head in the sand or to look at one's own gain only. End quote. How does one change the mind of people in government and industry to make fundamental economic changes that they often erroneously view as contrary to their own personal interests? This challenge is intensified by narratives that often pit workers against the environment. After all, who wants to appear anti-job? I believe this presents a false choice, and in part two of this post, I will offer a few examples before discussing the impediments to change. Stay tuned. Through the fog This is part two of a three-part post where I examine the relationship between human economic inequality and environmental issues. I ended part one of this post by declaring the supposed conflict of interests between the working classes and animals in the environment as deceptive and misleading. The first example of the fallacious choice between saving jobs and protecting animals involves a key piece of federal legislation. Since the enactment of the Endangered Species Act in 1973, there have been numerous national debates about saving certain endangered species that live in areas where human activity encroaches. The endangered spotted owl comes to mind. Logging operations were significantly reduced in Oregon in the 1990s so as to not destroy the habitat of the remaining owls. Loggers and conservatives claimed the policy was misguided, costing thousands of jobs. Conservationists viewed the owls as an important piece of an entire ecosystem, worthy of protecting, in large part, because of the fundamental role the owl plays in the Pacific Northwest. Missing from this debate, of course, was a discussion about the tenuous status of loggers and the entire timber industry for working-class folks. Logging jobs had been decreasing for decades before the spotted owl controversy arose. The owls had no significant impact on the industry as a whole. What the owls provided, however, along with the Endangered Species Act, was a scapegoat for economic policies enacted by wealthy members of Congress that debilitated the working classes. A second example is whaling. 
the Maka tribe in CKU Washington has a treaty with the United States government from 1855 that specifically allows them to hunt two whales a year consistent with their historical practices. The tribe views the whale hunt as not only providing sustenance, but a return to their traditions as well. However, environmental and conservation groups have challenged this treaty, and it is currently under review in federal court. I followed this since the Maka killed their first and last whale for 70 years in 1999. When reading about this controversy, the most common components are whether the 1855 treaty still applies, how a recent die-off of whales affects the treaty, and what role the whale plays in the local waters. What is almost entirely absent from public discussions is the effect of commercial whaling that drove whales in the Pacific Northwest and most other places to near extinction. In the U.S. specifically, companies owned by powerful corporate interests hunted whales with abandon to the point that some species became extinct and others, such as the northern right whale, are still struggling to recover almost 100 years later. The hunting of whales by indigenous peoples has had no impact on the whale population as a whole, yet they are the focus of federal lawsuits. Again, the question, why is our choice between poor people and animals? The takeaway here for me is that if we are interested in protecting the environment and the animals within it, we must address human inequality, and specifically poverty, first or at least concurrently. This needs to happen at the political level, since the ability to effectuate global change is most likely to be found there. Environmental and conservation groups, while legitimately concerned with ecological issues, are typically not suited to make fundamental changes in society. In The Golden Rule, renowned paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould wrote, quote, The conservation movement was born, in large part, as an elitist attempt by wealthy social leaders to preserve wilderness as a domain for patrician leisure and contemplation. We've never entirely shaken this legacy of environmentalism as something opposed to immediate human needs, particularly of the impoverished and unfortunate, end quote. How do we bring about this change then? It won't be easy. To see what we are up against, I direct the reader to The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot. Talbot, one of the leading Kennedy scholars in America, outlines how far the CIA, FBI, and Congress will go to protect the financial interests of the elite by focusing on brothers Allen and John Foster Dulles. Another post on another day will be dedicated to our improprieties in meddling with world political affairs, but suffice to say that animals have no chance when entire governments have been overthrown to protect U.S. corporate interests. For example, Alan Dulles, the longest-serving director of the CIA, and his brother, John Foster, formerly Secretary of State under President Eisenhower, before and after their public service, were partners in one of the most prestigious law firms in the world, Sullivan and Cromwell. One of the firm's many clients was the United Fruit Company, and the brothers played a leading role in deposing Jacobo Arbenz, the democratically elected president of Guatemala, who was deemed hostile to U.S. business interests for redistributing land to peasants. As late American Indian activist John Trudell stated, the corporations use their law enforcement agencies, such as the FBI and the CIA, as private standing armies for the corporate state. Indeed, the interconnectedness between the corporate and military intelligence sectors is clear to see, and any proposal that is deemed threatening to the economic status quo will encounter tremendous resistance. In order to see positive changes in the status of impoverished groups as well as environmental issues, 
This U.S. hegemonic control of world economic and political affairs will necessarily need to be challenged. This brings me to the titular Bernie of Bernie and the Elephants. Bernie Sanders and, to a degree, Elizabeth Warren, who has recently dropped out of the race, are the only Democratic candidates vying for the 2020 nomination that consistently address the aggrandized role of corporate power in our political systems. This uniqueness makes sense on some level. Approximately 40% of members of Congress are millionaires, and the Fox has a vested interest in guarding the chicken coop. In part three of this post, I will conclude with a where-do-we-go-from-here discussion as I attempt to make sense of the links between the presidential election, poverty, and the environment. Stay tuned. This is the conclusion of a three-part post where I examine the relationship between human economic inequality and environmental issues. Part two of this post concluded by presenting Bernie Sanders and, to a lesser degree, Elizabeth Warren as the Democratic candidate most concerned with the bloated corporate power found in American economic and political institutions. While Warren has since dropped out of the race, Sanders remains, and he has consistently railed against corporations slashing wages and laying off workers, all while the richest corporate CEOs pay themselves huge bonuses. Indeed, according to the nonpartisan Economic Policy Institute, CEO compensation has grown 940% since 1978, while the average worker compensation has risen by a paltry 12%. Since first elected to public office in 1981, Sanders has made workers' rights the backbone of his political platform. Few other current politicians have addressed these issues at all, nonetheless with the consistency and fervor of Sanders. Now, whether Sanders or any other president could actually rattle the cage and fundamentally alter the marriage between politics and economic power is anyone's guess. The eminent sociologist C. Wright Mills spoke of the difficulty in replacing these systems of political power due to what he called systemic imperatives. Mills felt that political systems reproduce themselves since there are constraints on the power of the president or any individual member of Congress to make fundamental change thus keeping the status quo in place. Or, outside the ivory tower of academia, one might point to the old Southern saying that rattlesnakes don't commit suicide. They don't bite or kill themselves. Others do. The law of vested interests dictates that people won't give up privileges voluntarily, so corporations and the politicians they support will not willingly cede power in order to create a more equitable playing field for humans or animals. But thanks to Sanders and Warren, at least it has become an issue in the center of political debates, not just on the periphery. This alone gives hope. On the contrary, President Trump has eliminated the 2% pay increase for government workers, reduced taxes on the wealthy, supported right-to-work laws that make it difficult for unions to operate, and appointed federal judges with a history of pro-corporation, anti-worker decisions. He has also consistently rolled back environmental protections put in place by prior administrations and congressional sessions in the almost four years he has been in office. To wit, as I wrote the first segment of this post, Andrew Wheeler, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, announced his agency will reduce the number of United States waterways that are protected under the federal Clean Water Act. Tellingly, the announcement was made in Las Vegas at the National Association of Home Builders International Builders Show. 
This is but one of many efforts made by the Trump administration to not only ignore, but to exacerbate environmental degradation. The U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue stated, President Trump is restoring the rule of law and empowering Americans by removing undue burdens and strangling regulations from the backs of our productive farmers, ranchers, and rural landowners. So once again, workers strangled by regulations are pitted against our natural, natural environment. Changes need to be made throughout the American political system, but a good place to start would be reducing the influence of corporations in U.S. elections. The nonpartisan McCain-Feingold Act, which capped the amount of money corporations could contribute to political campaigns, was a step in the right direction, but it was deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in the Citizens United case. The court essentially held that corporations have a First Amendment right of free speech, and limiting their spending would curtail this right. The irony is that if a corporation, which is not a person, has free speech, then why don't trees or animals or national parks? Lawsuits aiming to sue corporations for environmental degradation have routinely been dismissed since environmental entities do not have standing and are therefore not protected by First Amendment considerations. In my view, the links between human inequality and environmental issues are a matter of life and death, but of human life and death, not the planet's. The earth will survive human perfidy, but humans may not. My concern for the environment and the animals within is not driven by a stewardship notion that assumes humans have a moral obligation to take care of the planet, as if presented to us by some deity or confluence of existential events. Again, as Stephen Jay Gould wrote, quote, We are one among millions of species, stewards of nothing. On geological scales, our planet will take good care of itself, and let time clear the impact of any human malfeasance. Our planet simply waits." End quote. Similarly, the American Indian activist John Trudell implored us to develop our loyalties to this planet and this future and our descendants more than to governing political systems that have created all these problems. He says, if people are trying to find solutions to the problems in the defined abstractions of democracy, if they're not willing to think objectively about our responsibilities to our own descendants, then they will come up with no solutions. These are artificial political boundaries, yet they create and set forth policies that have concrete ramifications. Protecting the environment for its own sake is worthwhile, but it may not suffice in our modern political and economic climate. Decency alone should be enough to motivate humans towards policies that acknowledge our interconnectedness with the physical environment and which provide stability for all. Thus, I will finish this three-part post with a quote from the Botswana conservationist Neil Fitt and leave it up to you and me to answer his query. The question is, how do we empower people to understand the global picture and not just see what is closest to them, therefore enabling them to truly make a contribution and, if able, be allowed to have more say in managing the systems and natural resources they are closest to. The simple answer is education and good jobs for all, but to my knowledge, no country in the world has ever managed that. So is it just a dream? You have been listening to On Bernie and the Elephants on our social landscape. Thank you for listening.